Welcome to 931, Growing the Church in Canada, a podcast about church revitalization and hosted by Heritage College and Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Join us as we explore with Canadian leaders strategic topics related to church revitalization. Well, good morning. It's my delight to welcome Dr. Stan Fowler, the Professor Emeritus of Theology here at Heritage Seminary. Uh, Dr. Fowler, would you tell us, please, about your experience of God's grace in coming to faith in Christ? Well, that's a fascinating story, Keith, in many ways. Um, I grew up in Indiana, back in the USA. Uh, my, my parents were sort of good people, but not uh, committed believers uh, up until I was 11 years old. Uh, when I was 11, uh, my parents, through the witness of some longtime friends, uh, became believers in Christ in uh, what we called back then a revival service at, um, at a small Baptist church in central Indiana. Um, for some reason, I, I was a little resistant to confessing faith in Christ right away. Um, a lot of that revolved around the fact that it was... Um, it was a church deeply committed to what, what's traditionally been called revivalistic methods and altar call methodology. And I, I frankly resisted that whole idea of making my way down to the front during the 10th stanza of Just As I Am. <laughs> and, um, and, but I, I, I could see that it was true. I could see it made changes in my parents' life. And so God drew me to faith. In the quietness of my own bedroom, I, okay. I, I really said yes to Christ and the gospel. Um, and sometime after that, in, in conversation with the pastor, I, I told him about that. And, and, and so then when I was 13, I confessed my faith in baptism in a creek in running water outdoors. That's very legitimate baptism. Absolutely. <laughs> so so that, that's the basic way God's grace was at work in Amen. my life and bringing me into the family. Now, was that your home church for a number of years? It was. Uh, as I said, I was 11 when my parents were converted there. But, but then it was, a, it was a small church outside a small town near Indianapolis. Uh, it became a mega church, actually, um, ultimately. But it was my home, I guess, my home church through university, although while in university, I wasn't there normally. Um, aside from the summer, I, w- I was... I was part of a small church um, in West Lafayette, Indiana, near Purdue, where I went to university. Now, walk us, if you would, walk us through the process of your sense of calling to gospel ministry. You, you didn't head to university to, to explore theological education. You were there for another purpose. Right. I think, I think I can honestly say when I was finishing high school, I was open to the idea of vocational ministry. But, but I, I just did not sense that was the direction for me at the time. Now, it's possible that a, a part of what was going on in my head was, look, I have all kinds of academic abilities, so uh, I'm sure there are other ways I could use it, so I don't, why would I default to ministry? Right. I, that was not conscious, though. I think I was genuinely open. And, and so I went to Purdue University to pursue a degree in mathematics, originally with the thought of being an actuary. I'm, I, oh, I never knew an actuary before then. I'm not sure why. Hmm. I'd read about it hmm. somewhere in a book about careers, maybe it's because they made good money that I, that I was attracted <laughs> possible, to. It. But it was, it was about applied mathematics. And then I decided, no, you know, I'm really more interested in pure mathematics and philosophy and all that sort of thing. 
But then, while I was in university, I was involved in a small Baptist church near the campus with a pastor who who was, in, in many ways, was way ahead of his time in terms of mentoring people and and encouraging people um, in whom he thought he saw uh, gifts for ministry. He involved me with various kinds of ministries with him. And along the way would, would say, by that time I was thinking, okay, I'm going to finish my degree in mathematics, probably do a PhD in math, teach math, maybe in a Christian college. And he said, are you really sure that it's math you want to teach? And by my third year in university, I, I began to realize, you know, my real passion is Bible and theology and, and th- everything related to the Christian faith. And, and so by, by the end of my third year, I realized after I finished this math degree, I, I really need to go to seminary and prepare for ministry. Uh, wasn't exactly sure what shape it would take at that point. But it, it was largely through involvement in a church with a pastor okay. who— Through service. Yeah, through you actual know, in, service. in that era, in my tribe, the idea of call to ministry, I think, was typically conceived along the lines of a Damascus Road experience. Right. We waited for, for you know, the Lord to, to speak in some kind of powerful crisis way which I think is not really true to the overall biblical picture about those who become elders yes. and pastors Agreed. in the church. And so I got involved with a pastor who saw it differently. And, uh, and so over time, I just realized my real passion is to uh, help people think rightly about God and obey his word. And so I headed toward seminary and toward pastoral ministry. So after, after graduation, you graduated then with an under, undergraduate degree in mathematics right? and then headed off almost immediately, the next fall, to uh, I graduated uh, early June 1968 in September 1968, um, freshly married, Mar- got married six days after my university graduation. And then by September of 68, we were off to Dallas, where I started my four years at Dallas Seminary. Why did you choose Dallas? Was that the influence of the pastoral counsel you received at the time? Uh, no, not, not especially. Uh, although it wasn't put down as an option. I, I investigated a lot of seminaries, uh, read their catalogs. At that time in my life, um, the, the, some of the Dallas profs had written books that I had read. Actually, when, before my wife and I were even engaged, when I was in university, she gave me for a birthday present a a book called Truth for Today, which was a collection of articles from Bibliotheca Sacra, the Dallas Seminary hey, Journal. Yes. And and that was that was one of the things that really made me aware of where my passions were. And and so I, I think probably a, a lot of the reason for going there was I I I valued the the professors whom okay. I had read. Dallas also had, as the only, only seminary I know of in the world that does not have an MDiv program, instead had a standard four-year THM program. And even at that point, I, I had a sense that maybe I was going to go on to do a doctorate. And, and so it seemed like Dallas was a good place to go to get that, that THM in place and proceed on toward, toward a doctorate in theology. Um, the ironic thing is, um, after I got there and started my studies, I found that 
um, the most impressive professors for me were not the ones that I had read before going. Uh, there were actually others uh, who, who were much more uh, significant in my development. Uh, nevertheless, um, it was even though I, I, I changed some of my theological perspectives while I was there, which put me a little offside with Dallas Seminary, uh, it was wonderful education. Uh, I, I, I received all kinds of help in um, interpreting and applying scripture and um, good process, it was, healthy, it, it was, thorough it was, process it was a healthy of examination. Part of my development, yes. Now, were, did you stay in Dallas during that those, that entire four year period? Uh, well, fundamentally, although uh, summer of nineteen seventy, we, my wife and I, uh, migrated to San Jose, California. Uh, because I spent the summer selling Bible study books door-to-door okay. with the Southwestern Company. Wow, wow. Uh, the following summer, between my third and fourth years in Dallas, uh, they let me stay in Dallas because we, our first child was born at the end of June that summer. Southwestern let me stay in Dallas and sell books in a Dallas suburb. So I know that selling books door-to-door um, is not an internship, <laughs> but... But Still was, useful. But it was a wonderful part of, of God developing me and uh, I think taking me out of my some of my introverted nature, um, empowering me, giving me some new ability to relate to all kinds of people, and frankly, learning to work hard. Um, Southwestern demanded that we work 75 hours a week. So um, I learned a whole lot That's about work ethic, week. and I learned a whole lot about relating to all kinds of people. And I got some great stories to tell in sermons over the decades. <laughs> Neat. Now, coming out of seminary, upon graduation, then, did you begin pastoral ministry in the U.S.? I did. We, uh, When I graduated, we moved back to central Indiana. Um, I had no church to go to at the time, and so I, I did some part-time work in the bookstore. Uh, we lived, my wife and I and our, our daughter uh, lived with my mother-in-law for a time, but then um, I had the chance to, uh, to go as a guest preacher to Emmanuel Baptist Church in Bloomington, Indiana. Um, it was just guest preacher. And then they said, actually, we don't have anybody for next week. Could you come back? And I went back. And then we began talking about longer term. And uh, the, so the Sunday on which I was a candidate there was actually the sixth Sunday in a row that I had preached there. It was an unusual candidating experience, but um, it was a unique situation. Um, I could do it, and it gave the church and me a chance to get to know each other pretty well. Did you go through a formal interview process as part of that hire? Oh, I did, sure. Sure. Um, yeah, I did that. It was All the, all the normal things occurred, but uh, they occurred in a little different way. Right. How did God direct your steps then to come to Canada? How many hours do we have here for me to tell the story? Let, <laughs> well, let, we'll let me, <laughs> Reader's Digest. has to be the condensed let, version. Let me give you the Reader's <laughs> Digest version. Um, I, 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 was, I, was, I was the pastor at Emmanuel Baptist in Bloomington for five years. Um, four years into that, the, um, the, the, the denomination of which we were a part, General Association of Regular okay. Baptist Churches, tightened up its doctrinal statement 
to include a commitment to uh, not just to premillennialism, but to dispensational premillennialism and pre-tribulation rapture. I, I was not a pre-trib, um, so that caused me some discomfort. Now, about the same time that happened, um, there was an article in the denominational magazine, the Baptist Bulletin, defending a pre-tribulation rapture. And I wrote a letter to the editor in response to it, which, looking back on it now, was, well, let's just say I was candid. <laughs> maybe, maybe a little too candid in my comments. But a man who became a very dear friend, Ed Mahorder, uh, was then a pastor in Toronto at Mount Pleasant Road Baptist Church. He, he had migrated one year earlier from Michigan okay. into Canada for similar reasons. He, he was out of step in terms of uh, eschatology with the GARBC. He, he sent me a letter and said, we've never met. I don't know you, but I can tell from reading your letter that you may need to look for some place <laughs> to go. Walking papers. <laughs> he did, indeed. He sent a brochure about the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptist Churches in Canada. And I liked what I saw. I got in touch with the general secretary, Jack Watt, and he arranged for my wife and me to come to Niagara Falls at the end of October 1976 to visit the National Convention, and he told me he would arrange uh, for me to preach at a church uh, the Sunday after the convention. (laughs) And so the Sunday after that convention, I preached at Rennie Mead Baptist Church in Toronto. Now, nothing happened um, immediately for a whole lot of reasons at Runnymede. I ended up preaching at another church in Toronto in December, but I was probably too young to fit into that situation. I received a unanimous call to a fellowship church in Portage La Prairie, Manitoba. I, I, I was convinced it was not a, right, a good fit, and, and they had not done their adequate work in examining me, and so I declined the call. And a while later, Runnymede called again. So by, by the fall of 1977, I had said yes to a call to Runnymede Church. Mm-hmm. And we immigrated there in, 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 uh, on a Friday the 13th in January of 1978 in a snowstorm. It was classic, <laughs> never forget. classically <laughs> Canadian, eh? Um, so I've, I've told people I'm an ecclesiastical refugee from the evangelical battle of Armageddon. <laughs> And, and the fellowship in Canada provided an opportunity for, for me to minister um, without question marks about my orthodoxy uh, because my eschatology wasn't, More diversity. wasn't totally kosher. Now, you would have connected quite immediately with Ed Mahorder, obviously with him being in the city. Oh, yes. I met Ed, I met Ed and his wife, Mary. Uh, we met them at that convention in October of 76. And, and we became... Uh, Felt like we'd been lifelong friends. Kindred Became spirits. good friends immediately. Yeah. Um, nurtured that friendship over the years and have continued to do so up until last year when they, uh, they, relocated. they had to move to Vancouver. Yes. Yeah. Now, fairly early on as a pastor at Renimede, you moved into a role as a professor of systematic theology. I did. If, if, if my memory serves me correctly, my wife and I were in, if not the first, one of your first classes at CBS, Central Baptist Seminary, which... Of course, now merged, become Heritage in 1993. But during that time, you really tracked a lot of trends and issues in terms of theological education. 
When it comes to the doctrine of the church, what would you understand to be three or four key principles? Where, where would you say that these are key principles that leaders need to grapple with in terms of providing leadership or here's what the church is, here's what the church should be according to Scripture? Well, that's a great question, Keith. Um, for, for a variety of reasons uh, that I'm not even totally aware of, Ecclesiology became, over the years, kind of a special focus of mine. Um, I would say one, one of the key uh, ideas in terms of biblical ecclesiology is that the church is the believer's church concept. The church is a community of disciples. It's not everybody who lives in a given territory, like I'm, I'm Italian, so I'm Catholic. National church, right. Um, and it's not uh, believers and their children. It's, it's the church as such is a community of disciples. And, and that's, that's a crucial concept. Um, and it has all kinds of implications for uh, the way we admit people to a formal membership in the church. It has implications for church discipline. If people refuse to live as disciples, then discipline is required. So I, th- I think the, the whole idea of the Believer's Church ecclesiology, it's hard to find the right word to describe it, but, but that's really very important. Baptists often refer to it as regenerate church membership. I, personally, I'm a little uncomfortable with that phrase because it, it overstates what we can know about the people in the church. Okay, Only right. God knows who's regenerate. Yes. Now, if we say the professed, professedly regenerate membership, that captures it. But that's not a very elegant phrase. So church as a community of disciples, I think, is a very important concept. Um, another is that the, the, the idea that the church is called to be a distinct society, a counterculture in the wider culture for the benefit of the wider culture. So the, the biblical terminology about the church uses phrases like holy nation, for example, or people of God. Uh, who are called out to be a, a, a unique and special people. Right. So now over the centuries, we, we have the Christendom concept that developed in which church and society became coterminous. They, 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 they came to be this close identity between the two. And unfortunately, um, many believers, including many Baptists, are still living with that concept. And, and we have to get beyond that. We have to recognize the church is always called to be an outpost of the kingdom, a, a foreshadowing of, of the rule of Christ that's going to be fully manifested in the end. So we're called to be a distinct society. We have to be, we have to be willing to be different from the world around us. And I think thirdly, um, over, over time, I've just become more and more impressed with the biblical idea that, that the ecclesia, the church, is both local and global. It's both local and extended. And, and the body of Christ is not just my congregation. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the whole body of disciples in the world. And, and we need to find ways to affirm that. Now, that, that I guess has made me a bit of a reformer in, in my own Baptist tribe because I, I, I think the way Baptist churches have developed over the last um, 400 years, especially in North America, has been one in which there, there, there came to be this fixation on local autonomy. 
and 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 it came the fixation was such that um, only the local church, the congregation, is sort of the real church. Anything beyond that is purely optional. I would argue that that just isn't true to a New Testament ecclesiology that takes seriously the connection to the whole mm-hmm. ecclesia, the whole wider church. And so I'm a proponent of a much stronger sense of connection uh, between congregations, even including some mutual accountability to the wider church. Um, and to the, the fact that we need to find ways to affirm our link to all those congregations of, of genuine disciples of Christ, uh, whatever denominational label. Intentional. They, they, they so intentional find. engagement so with others locally, nationally, globally, whatever that looks like it, 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 in, in each expression, in each community, it's going to look a little different. It's going to look a little different, but we need to recognize that God's church Christ's church over which he is the head is is much larger than my particular experience of it locally. Now, connecting pastoral ministry with theological education, how have you found that your pastoral your own pastoral ministry experience has shaped your instruction? You've been a professor, you were a pastor, you've been in pastoral role in many ways. How have those two come together? That's a fascinating question. Um I know, I know there's been a major impact based on that experience of mine in pastoral ministry. Um, articulating it is not as, not as okay. easy as one might like. Some of it's, is, you know, I think, maybe, maybe somewhat intangible. But, but it, I can think of several ways. One is 13 years as a full-time preaching pastor, normally preaching two different sermons every Sunday and teaching an adult Bible class. You know, these are the old days yes. when we all had evening yes. services. Yes. And Sunday school. <laughs> and, and Sunday school. And <laughs> I taught an adult class. I preached on Sunday morning. I preached on Sunday evening. Doing that much biblical teaching uh, through those 13 years in two different churches as full-time teaching pastor meant that I, I, I learned a whole lot more Bible in that time than I did in four years in seminary. Sure. And so it, it gave me um, a, a fund of basic biblical knowledge um, so that teaching theology, I think, ha- has been, for me, has been g- seriously grounded in a serious commitment to Scripture. Um, I think another factor is that that experience of pastoral ministry gave me some feeling for what questions are important and what questions are maybe not so important. I mean, we all recognize that some theological questions are absolutely crucial right. and some right. theological questions are interesting maybe rabbit to, trail to some <laughs> but but frankly not all that crucial so i think i think in some ways that's helped me recognize the things i need to emphasize and the things i i really don't need to spend quite as much time on essentials non-essential sorting that out right I how think, do you how how do you help students i just interrupt that how, how do you help students sort that out how, how do you press them so that they don't get waylaid with non-essentials well, uh, it means I, I push back with questions when we're in class discussion or outside the classroom to, to say things like, uh, okay, um, how many times would you think that's addressed in Scripture? Uh, or what would be the cash value on the ground okay. of taking a particular view on that? Um, 
is that important? Does it affect the life of the church in, in an ongoing, every day, every week way? Um, one of the things we, we talk about uh, when we talk about the unity of the church and the doctrinal purity of the church is, is, is I, I force students to ask, if you were creating a church doctrinal statement, how would you decide what to include okay. and what not to include? Because you need to recognize in the nature of the case, a confessional statement is excluding some people. In fact, it's, it's almost certainly, mm-hmm. a, a, unless it's a really bare minimum, you're excluding some who are genuine believers. And you need to ask, on what basis would I do that? Now, I think there, there can be some understandable reasons, but, but, but I try to force students to ask, is it really necessary? Why? So I think that, that's a part of it. I, I think another way in which the pastoral ministry has played into it is it enables me to say to students, now, teaching this in the church, here are some things you need to remember. Here are the ways that people will understandably respond to that. And and so I may be able, I, I mean, obviously time's limited, but sometimes I can say, now I remember when I was talking about this at Renneymead Church in Toronto okay. or Emmanuel right. Church in mm-hmm. Bloomington. You know, I, I had to come at it this way. So I, I think it, it comes across, students recognize, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an academic merely talking to other academics. What I, the, if, if what I do with them doesn't have cash value out there in the church and the world, then I'm not doing what I need to do. And, and I... I at least, I think, have can manifest an awareness that I've, I've been there trying to teach this. Now, the word contextualization is often used in a missions context, but in, in one sense, you're helping students contextualize the teaching. So depending on the history of the church, depending on their own journey of theological um, struggle, theological instruction, they may need to th- really think through, how am I going to present this truth? Would you say that would be good, good counsel? For oh, them? absolutely. I, I mean, we, we never minister in a vacuum. Uh, we always minister in a particular context where the church has its own history, uh, the individuals have their own history, and um, not every hill is worth dying on. Right, right. And, and so, and, and of course, in our contemporary world, we're, we're not only dealing with the church context, we're dealing with how do you help God's people relate to a wider societal context that is in some ways unfriendly and hostile toward traditional Christian faith. Um, so it's absolutely crucial to help them understand that contextualizing is not, is not something that only those who cross the ocean have to mm, think about something we we all have to think about. Well, thanks, Dr. Fowler. We're grateful to God for his ministry and the way he has used you here. That wraps up part one of our interview with you, and we're looking forward to part two as we continue this vital discussion on issues of church health and evangelism. Thanks for tuning in to 931 Growing the Church in Canada, a podcast seeking to explore issues of church revitalization. 
To learn more about what Heritage College and Theological Seminary has to offer you and your church, please visit our website at heritagecambridge.com where we're seeking to honor and serve Jesus Christ and his bride, the church.